Uh, Mr. President, my lords, ladies and gentlemen, pray silence for Lord Brabazon of Tara, President of the Royal Aero Club. My lords and gentlemen, a great dinner like this could only be a success if it had the representative of the government of the day speaking and the head of all aeronautics in the person of the president of the Royal Aeronautical Society. We have had those two gentlemen here and we thank them very much for the admirable and wonderful speeches that they have made to us. I am here tonight as the president of the great Royal Aero Club. And it is my duty on their behalf to reply to the toast of the first generation. I stand, so to speak, for the human side. For through our portals, every one of that generation has passed. We knew them all. We knew them at the bar. We knew them at lunch. We've talked over every subject in the world with them, and we knew them all well. And we knew the rights. They came to our funny little club of those early days. We entertained them with the modest stability that was our lot in those days. They appealed to us enormously because they were such quiet, unassuming men. Wilbur we knew better than Orville, because if you remember in 1908, Wilbur flew in Europe while Orville flew in America. I was privileged to see Wilbur working and flying at Le Mans. I can see him now in his shed, which was his hotel and where he slept and had his bath in. Curious man, very gaunt to look at, always very polite, but rather aloof. He was always ready to talk to anybody who was really keen on the subject. But he was indeed chilly and offhand if anybody viewed him, or indeed flight, as a curiosity. His great friend was Griffith Brewer. Griffith Brewer was one of our greatest friends in the Royal Aero Club. One may look upon Griffith Brewer almost as one looks upon Boswell relative to the great Dr. Johnson. Griffith Brewer was his patent agent. And, you know, they both enjoyed each other's company right from the very beginning. They were two people very alike. And the height of their happiness was being in each other's presence and neither of them speaking a word. <laughs> there was a bond of sympathy between Griffith Brewer and the Wright family which lasted to the very end. And Orville always had a room reserved for Griffith Brewer in his modest home in America 
until his dying day. It's sometimes asked, what sort of men wear these rights? Well, I can answer that straight away. You will find the equivalent in this country, in any provincial town, in men who sell bicycles and gramophones. People of certain technical knowledge, able to do most jobs with their own hand, with keen imagination. They were what you might call today, I suppose, technologists. Sir William Farron asked, why did they ever get keen on aeronautics? Well, I think it was due to the fact that when they were boys, with other boys, they flew kites. And they made a kite which was better than any of the other boys and sold them the kites. <laughs> and with that, they made their pocket money. They made bicycles, and they even raced bicycles. Both Wilbur and Orville Wright won races on their own bicycles in order to sell them. I don't believe that one of, one of them would have succeeded without the other. They were so remarkable of team, and one acted on the other to check him going too fast. I do hope you will appreciate what a long uphill struggle it was for them. They were handicapped by lack of money, by lack of time, and as all those early pioneers, the whole world looked upon them as cranks, rather like somebody trying to find perpetual motion. And I think few of the modern generation realize what lack of faith there was in the possibility of flying only 50 years ago. I had the privilege of introducing Voisin to Wilbur Wright. Voisin, if you remember, was the man who made the machine upon which Farman won the Archdeacon Prize. It was a memorable meeting. They grinned at each other the whole way through dinner, through lunch, I should say, neither of them, of course, being able to speak a word of each other's language. And when, as we were having dinner, curiously enough, the great Lebode airship came over the top of the hotel, and we ran up onto the roof and watched it. And everybody was waiting for what the French called, called the, le mot juste, something extraordinary that Wilbur Wright might say, and all he said was, how very lucky to have seen that. <laughs> this man never pretended to be a great man. He never tried to sell himself. He never thought somehow that he was a tremendous personality. He always remained the simple, quiet soul that he was. And yet his name and that of his brother will be revered forever. I remember in talking to him, asking him a silly question, I said, will you design me a machine to do 100 miles an hour? Quite a thing to ask at that time. And he said, well, that's quite possible if you will provide the engine. <laughs> oh, what a wise remark. If you will provide the engine is still the answer to speed today.
They had a corner in their heart for England. We had treated them well. We always treated them not as exhibits, but as friends. And as you know, the Science Museum had the honor of housing their wonderful first machine for 25 years. I saw it again the other day in Washington in the Smithsonian. I thought it was curious that no mention of its sojourn here for 25 years was mentioned. The reasons are deep. They do not reflect very great credit upon the Smithsonian Institute, but we understand the story. But in that bitter fight, in that fight where the prophet was without honor in his own country, Griffith's Brewer played an honorable and wonderful part. The great Sir George Cayley, when he was studying and making one of his first gliders, a very remarkable man, he invented the hot air engine and also the tension wheel, he suddenly got a letter from Stringfellow with a most elaborate design which Stringfellow had put down on paper with steam engines and a machine for carrying many people. And the old man was very annoyed. And he wrote him a remarkable letter in which he says, Really, you must go slow. I do assure you that before flight is safe, a hundred necks will be broken. Now, for an understatement in prophecy, <laughs> that is absolutely classic. <laughs> But at what cost of human life have we reached the present position? Starting with the death of the great Lilienthal, almost the pioneer of really serious gliding. The runway of aviation is paved with tombstones beneath which lie the poor crushed or burned bodies of young, lovable, imaginative, adventurous spirits. The pioneers that fell by the wayside. We shall not forget them, I hope, at this dinner tonight. To take only two, Pilcher and Rhodes. What a lot we have missed that flight claimed them so early. You may well ask, what sort of men were those who were the pioneers of flight? And of what did they dream of the future? Why did they do it? And what for? Well, they were of all sorts. They came from every walk of life. They persevered, unsupported, and alone. Please remember that official science left them as severely alone. And they were surrounded by much ridicule. 
But do let me assure you, they did not go on for any money that there was in it, for there was no money in it. But they did realize that here was something tremendous for mankind, and indeed thrilling. In the various talks and the memories which are fresh in my memory, in my mind of all those days, when we talked among ourselves and dreamt dreams of the future, I cannot imagine and I cannot remember anybody ever visualizing that one would be able to fly from London to New York and back again in 24 hours. That wasn't even dreamt about. And that is a tribute I pay to the amazing development that has occurred in those 50 years. But you know, they all had at the back of their heart a feeling that they were bringing something good, good, mark you, into the world. And the point is, were they right? There was a time when the gift of flight was wholly prostituted for war. I blame no one. It was inevitable. It was correct. And when we took the job on in this country, right well, we did it. But one must remember that even the word aeroplane stank in the nostrils of all decent men throughout the world. For a more devastating, death-dealing machine had never been invented. I wondered sometimes whether the work of the Wright brothers and the early pioneers would not be execrated, not celebrated, throughout the world. I wondered whether the ingenuity of man had not produced a juggernaut that would destroy the very civilization of which it was an expression. We still hold in our hands such terrible forces. It was not for that that pioneers so cheerfully laid down their lives. What was it then they hoped for? I think they hoped that what would happen is what I think is happening now. Under you, sir, Mr. Minister, they hope that by the fruits of their labor, the world would be shrunken in time separation, as indeed it has happened. They hope that between all countries throughout the world, there would be services of airplanes that as they flew back and forth, would, so to speak, act as a shuttle that would weave a fabric of better understanding and peace throughout the world. That is beginning to happen today. And will you, Mr. Minister, remember this in your work? And may it indeed inspire you in the future of your great and useful life, that only if that side wins through will those who brought flight into being be convinced 
and satisfied that all their efforts were not in vain.